Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, up to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a buddy of mine. We've known each other for a long time. Buddy of mine slash agent. Uh, he's an executive vice president of the Wasserman Baseball Division. We're going to go behind the scenes today on what really happens in the baseball offseason. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Nick Chanick to the show. Nick, thanks for coming on the program, kid. Oh, Brett, it's a delight. What a, uh, I was thinking it's almost 18 years I've known you now. When I was, uh, oh, you were man, a little, many, many, little guy, many, many moons ago. Well, it, it's pretty cool. For those of you listening to the Boone Podcast, Nick, uh, currently with the Washerman Group, um, when I was still playing, Nick was a young man on his way up the ladder, finishing school, uh, and we got to know each other. Um, did a little work together and, and played some golf, but, but to watch you grow up and, and to become the agent now doing these big deals in, in major league baseball, it's really cool to see it. I remember when you were a punk kid trying to get your degree in college and you've come a long way and now you're in the big mix of it out of bed. Uh, what's a better interpretation of what it's really like being a baseball agent, Jerry Maguire or Arliss? Well, I'm partial to Arliss because it was based on Arn Tellum, who was the guy that hired me when I was 20 years old that opened the door for me. And I think Jerry Maguire is very over-dramatized, but I would probably have to say Jerry Maguire, although the characters in Arliss are based on a lot of the people that I grew up in the business in. So like, I can see who the characters were and who their extensions of in the original office that I worked for 19 years ago when I started. So it's, it's, our list is a little bit more dear to home, but I think Jerry Maguire is a little bit more like what it's really like. Um, uh, a lot of young kids, they want to be an agent. Everybody wants to be an agent. Everybody wants to represent the big boys, NFL, major league baseball, NHL, NBA. What's it really like being an agent? You know, it's, I love it. Some people will warn you that it's a really tough business, that it's that it's doggy dog, but that's what I love about it. Like if you don't want to be the best at something, why do you get up in the morning? I think about, you know, how I came to meet you 
18 years ago. I was, like you said, a punk kid a couple years out of college, just starting my law degree. I went to law school at night while I worked full time, which led to me sleeping about four to five hours a night for four years in a row. And one of the things that uh, happened to me very early, I was really blessed to have really great mentors. I think the mentors that you have in the business are one of the, if not the most important part of it, where you have people that teach you to do it the right way because the agent business there's a lot of different ways to do it. And I'm really proud of the way that we do it. I'm proud of the way that I was taught to do it by Arn and by Adam who represented you. And then uh, Joel Wolf that were the three kind of great teachers in my life, all having different impacts. But one of the things that I think was really cool, and this is something that Adam really did for me. And, but you know, when a player signs a big contract, there's at the end of their careers, um, you know, the agent's fees are vested and they've, players are writing big checks to the agents, you know, oftentimes it's sort of not dissimilar from what you see in today's world where players oftentimes get paid for what they did in the past, not necessarily what they're doing in the present. And that's one of the problems in the baseball ecosystem, I'd say arguably the biggest problem in today's world. But one of the things that Adam and Arn recognize is that I had a future in this business and I'm, I'm grateful they saw that, but they realized that you had to, to learn what it was like to be around stars because star baseball players have different lives than most people in the world. You know, and a baseball player that may play a couple of years in the big leagues and in the bullpen is a really, really impressive guy. And it's, it's an incredible story. I mean, I think there's the great adage that if you took every major league baseball player, it's like 20 something thousand in history, you wouldn't even fill half of the Cleveland stadium, which is the smallest stadium in the league. I mean, every major league baseball player in many ways is a lottery winner, but the ones that go and have great careers have long 10, 15 silver slugger, gold glove MVPs. They're a little bit of a different animal and there's no way to really learn what it's like and what the life of, you know, you've lived it. So, you know, or what John Carlos Stanton's life looks like, or Nolan Arenado's life, or you Darvish's life, or Javier Baez's life. There are all these different things. You can never, you can never really know um, until you, experience it. And I think one of the things that I was really grateful and appreciative for is that I got to have, I got to really learn what that life was like from some really uh, great players like you, like Carlos Lee, who pledged me like I was a rookie and would send me out to get coffee and then bought me a, <laughs> I, I never did. I never did. My first, he bought me a, you know, $5,000 suit when I was 23 years old and it, I still have it. I'm, I can't even throw it away. It's, you know, it's five, five times out of style, but, but it, you know, it was, he treated me the right way. And, and it, it, and there is a code among the really great players and there's a certain understanding, the greatness, they recognize each other. And they, they, there's certain things that are in the game that when you played and predated you and are still very much there. And I think that really is most connected with the stars more than anything else, I find. You know, I just remember our time when you talk about Adam, it's Adam Katz. And, and I signed with Adam and um, and that's how I was introduced to to Nick Janik. I knew and Adam has you probably know this because you you still work with Adam, but he has very high praise for Nick. I knew as a as a as a player that was kind of at the end of my career. I knew the talent that you possessed uh, on this side of the, uh, on this side of the baseball sphere. And it doesn't surprise me at all. I'm proud of you of what you've done and what you're accomplishing and what you're, 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 you're in the height of your career right now, but 
it doesn't come as a surprise to me. Like, that's what I expect. When I met you, you were fun. We had a good time. We could hang out and be buddies. <laughs> but at the same time, I knew there was something about you. I said, this kid's sharp, and he's going to be good. So when Adam praises you or, or I see the success you're having, it really doesn't surprise me at all. So that's that's my way of complimenting you. you. Um, Thank you. Appreciate that You know, that when it comes much. to ra- ra- uh, name recognition in the game, Everybody hears of Scott Boris. Everybody knows who Scott Boris is, the evil Scott Boris in some circles. Uh, but nevertheless, he's kind of the the name that comes with the agent of today's game. Um, and then there's kind of everybody else. I know the athletes know the big agents. We know the names. But how important in the industry is name recognition? You know, it's a very, very, very small industry when you when you get into the agents. I mean, if you think about it, I think there's 400 registered agents. I'd have to check with the union. And they're really only 20, in my opinion, that really have a chance at the, at the, at the best players. And, you know, we go up against Scott Boris all the time. He's had a tremendous long career in this business. He does it a little bit differently than we do it. And I think that, like, one of the things that I've always seen is – Scott is really out front. He's at the podium every day. He's a, he's a, he's a terrific public relations. He markets himself really well. He, he, like exactly what you just said. At the same time, you know, my partner Joel just did a deal for Yamamoto that broke the record for the largest pitching contract ever done. Stan's contract broke the record for the biggest that Joel and I did going on 10 years ago right now. And we had a very different kind of strategy to it. I think that at the end of the day, there's a great picture of Adam in the New York Times, Adam Katz, years ago, where he's behind the uh, podium and his face is completely blurred out on the front page of the New York Times. I think it's sort of a uh, really a, a mantra or a it really a great it really symbolizes what what our philosoph- philosophical approach to the business is. Or look, the player comes first. I didn't go out and hit 30 home runs and drive in 100 RBIs. It's not Nick Chan, a client, does A, B, C, and D. But by the same token, um, you know, I think that the name recognition, it is an important part of it because it gives you credibility. I mean, there's literally, when you go see a 16-year-old kid who's going to be the best kid in the country or one of the top picks, like, it's, you know, they're going to have 30 agents on them. And 25 of them have never done anything more than a draft deal. And so differentiating and getting that type of experience is really, really difficult. But um, what I think it comes down to is, like, I say this all the time, like, players are oftentimes like racehorses, especially in today's game, where, like, what do Trey Turner, Javier Baez, Francisco Lindor, Trevor Story, uh, Carlos Correa, let's just go over the five shortstops that are all making over $100 million. They were all top of the first round draft you know, these guys, like like when you look at the Cubs winning the World Series in 2016 and breaking the curse, and you go around the infield and you see Chris Bryant, the second pick in the draft, and Addison Russell was the fifth pick in the draft, and Javi the ninth, and I think Hayward the 14th, Amora the seventh, Schwarber the fourth. Like, these guys are dudes the whole way. You go to the Astros the next year. Like, when you look at how these teams go, like one of the things that's led me to have a lot of success in this business is understanding – um, you know, what the economics really look like and what the, you know, what the supply and demand really looks like. I mean, I, I broke in, I wrote my thesis about a statistical warp wins above replacement player. Nate Silver, before he started 538, was working at Baseball Prospectus. Now he predicts presidential elections, but he was the one of the pioneers of after Bill James creating the statistic. 
And the statistic is now in many ways, the preeminent statistic. I mean, we have our zero to three system based on a, a based on it in many ways. And there was a proposal last year in arbitration to try to do it, which would have been absolute nonsense. But the overarching, um, What's really happened, if you look over the 20 years from when I started to where I am now, is that these teams are all run by essentially guys that have a background in private equity or hedge funds. And if they didn't, they were trained like it. Like, I never went to go work for J.P. Morgan. I was going to my junior summer and ended up playing baseball in the New Jersey Collegiate League, and much to the chagrin of my dad. But at the same and he looked at me like I was crazy. I was going to go work in the derivatives branch at J.P. Morgan. But the reality of it is, is that that's that type of thinking is really invaded baseball, you know, and now it's gotten even crazier where war is like not even an advanced metric anymore. It's a it's a dated statistic. And now they're doing, you know, I mean, the Astros had NASA scientists looking at things. I mean, the, the detail with which these teams and how precise the game is, how precise. I remember talking to you one time talking about how well the players today know the strike zone. Like you see that little thing that goes up and you rate umps on every every. You know, the ump cam's going and the rating, oh, how many times they miss it. The ball's coming 97, 101 miles an hour right. at certain times, the split-second decisions. You know, it's, you know, the swing decisions is one of the driving forces of how teams evaluate talent and how they evaluate free agents. It's not hit 30 home runs, get paid in the same way that it is, hey, the swing decisions are a really, really big part of it and how you understand the strike zone and how you understand which pitches are in the strike zone at the right points you know, launch angle, like the entire stack has revolution is really a build on the private equity of Billy beans, Moneyball 20 years ago. And so I'm sort of a product of that. Um, it's, it, it, I'll tell you, it's really interested in, it's really interesting to me because it is different from when I was coming up and I was being drafted. Uh, still to this day, I can go out, I put eyes on a, on a player and, and I look for little nuances, things that maybe, anybody wouldn't just look at but still you're you're talking about today's draft how they draft is very statistically data driven where in 1990 when i'm getting drafted maybe some of that was intertwined but it was more of that scout that did the legwork that saw me and put a number down and that's and the other day we were having a talk i remember and you said to me brett nowadays they get it right a lot more than they used to because of the technology and the resources they have at their fingertips that, like you said, 20, 30 years ago, they didn't have, they didn't have access to. Yeah. I mean, I think today is really a, a appropriate day to discuss it. You talk about the international signing day and, you know, like you look at years ago, I remember like Hanley Ramirez is one of the guys that helped groom me in my way. And that was, that was as much of an adventure as you can, you could have. And, you know, Hanley, you know, was a pretty big prospect in the Red Sox system. And I think he had signed for a pretty small amount of money. You know, you look at Luis Castillo as a big star of the Mariners, like or Jose Ramirez, like these guys were signing for, you know, pennies. And now what's happened is, is that, you know, every dollar, I mean, Steve Cohen really said it best when he talked about, you know, the, the draft, that every dollar in the draft is worth $3 in free agency. And the international signing period, these, you know, these young Latin American players was sort of the final frontier. And, you know, I was looking today and I see, you know, David Stearns is down in the Dominican visiting Step Starlin Marte on the day that they're going to sign all of their young players because they have these academies and they're getting all this information, the track man, they're really, you know, Hawkeye, they're really, really 
they're getting much better at it. The the ability with which these teams have, I mean, it's a testament to them. I think they, they've done an incredible job really understanding data and applying it. And I think that like, you know, it's, you know, years ago, it used to be, okay, if I buy a player for $5 million, that's a little bit better than the player that costs $2 million. But instead, what you see now is a player that costs $2 million and team thinking, okay, I could turn him into a $6 million player by investing the right resources in him and turning him into, you know, by investing a million dollars in it. And then there's a net savings. Because you got to remember, right? Like, one of the things about being an agent, I, I remember one of the presidents of the team said this to me one time, that ultimately all these deals are just done between owners and players. Agents and general managers are like the, are the middlemen in this. But ultimately, like, you know, we saw this with Yamamoto, but like an owner wants, every deal that I've been a part of that is large scale, the owner, like, you know, once you get over a hundred million dollars, the owner is the owner's money. And he's, he's relying on the general manager and the president to tell them what the market's worth and to understand all the different components of it. But on the most fundamental level, it's the owners paying John Carlos Stanton to go play right field. And so what you, what you have to understand is, is that these teams and these owners have hired really, 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 really bright people that are really talented to, to get it right. And I think that like they've gotten, you know, there's sort of, sometimes there's a little bit of a herd mentality you know, one, one player, you know, now it's speed it used to be one true outcome a couple of years ago. Now they want bat and play with the bigger bases and the stolen bases. You know, that's what major league baseball has been pushing for. You know, the game is constantly adapting, but the best, the people that do the absolute best at it, take an Andrew Friedman, for example. I mean, they just, they develop better than anybody else. And so what you have to look at is you have to see when you look at the big picture, like base, baseball is a closed ecosystem. There's only 1100 or so players that really matter right? 26 guys and on the active roster, maybe 10 prospects in the minor leagues, roughly 30 guys on a team that really are ever going to be meaning, make meaningful contributions in an entire organization, basically one fifth of the organization. But like how you develop those guys is such a critical part of it. And I mean, literally the amount of data that they have processing every, every movement on the ball, it, it's, it's dramatic. And so you have to go to that's why you see the Japanese market exploding recently. It's because you have to go to outside the box things to, to gain advantages. You know, talk about, uh, I talked earlier about the Cubs winning the, uh, the World Series or the, or, the, uh, or the Astros the next year. Like, I believe Dallas Keuchel and Kyle Hendricks were both seventh and eighth round picks. And they played huge roles in both of those championships. Point is, is that like, yeah, like Bregman hit and Correa hit and Javi hit and Bryant hit, but like, it's those extra guys that, you know, when you get the fifth rounder, like when you look at Milwaukee, that throws Corbin, Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff, when you find the way to turn or Dustin May, you have with the Dodgers, when you find the way to take the guy that was, you know, had a couple of tools and turn him into a, a bona fide star, that's what really separates these organizations from each other at this point in time. You yeah, know, and I think, go ahead. No, no. And so to me, you know, these teams are really, are really, I mean, you know, take Tyler Glasnow, credit the Rays with it, where Tyler Glasnow was a guy with a six round pick throwing a hundred miles an hour, was walking and striking out as many guys per inning in the minor leagues. He gets the Rays, they fix him up and now he's a hundred million dollar player, you know, and he's going to be playing on a championship caliber team. 
So what you got you got to look at when you look at the big picture is that the key to today's world for the players is um, and for the teams is finding how to extract the most out of the players. And so what it really requires as an agent, it's not just oh I got them the most money, but it's 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 really oftentimes it is, but it's really understanding how to put the players in a position to be successful and how to how to help players to get the most out of them, especially not the ones like the ones that are the aircraft carriers that are the dudes the whole way, you know, okay. They, they may need a little less tweaking. They, they, they're, they're, they, but the ones that the Kyle Hendricks of the world, the Tyler Glasnow's are really great organizational wins and great agent wins, frankly. And that's, and, and that's a really, really cool and interesting part of it, I guess. Is what are the clubs when, when, when a club signs a deal uh, yep. with a free agent, what are they looking for in return? Is is it more than on the field? Is it off the field? Is it they're looking for return in ticket sales? Are they working looking for return in championships? What do you think the breakdown yeah. is there? I think the ticket sales is a little bit of a myth. I mean, maybe a little bit in an Otani case. It's something that an agent kind of pounds his chest on, says, right. "Oh, look at me! You know, look at all these things." And we did a huge study on Darvish, for example, when he came to the you know what kind of impact he had. And there, there are certain players that can do it. But like, you know, the attendance records are pretty, again, maybe slight, but that's not really where these teams are, are making their money. I think, look, like the highest contract ever given to a pitcher was just given to a player who's 25 years old that's never thrown a pitch in the major leagues. Yeah. And so what I, what I want you to understand is that the far and away, the most important coefficient in all of this is age. It's why Juan Soto next year will go out and make an astronomical contract. And it's why players like what these teams want is as many of your years from 25 to 32. And I think about like, because that's what the data says. That's when that's what the data says. 27 is the peak. And then, you know, again, there's the Scherzers and the Verlanders that are absolute. Right. And it, and it matters. Players. It matters position too. what position you're playing. There's definitely being in the middle of the diamond short second center field there is just it's just a fact you wear out quicker than if you're on the corner there's yes. not cutting and jiving you know like but you, like you do in the middle i think there's a statistic that only two players at over 33 have qualified for the batting title at shortstop in the last 10 years is brandon crawford and alcides escobar they move them off the position like yeah, i mean that's that's right, what happens right. because they can't they can't like 31 is basically shortstop change i went through this with one of my players, JP Crawford, and doing the deal with Jerry and Justin over there. Like, what you got to understand is, is that the game is played so precise. These guys are so good, functioning at the highest, highest, highest level. That one little swipe, you know, it's like a finely tuned Ferrari. One little, one little tick down, and it's you know, and, and you got to credit the players, especially the pitchers. I think the pitching data right now and the pitching is ahead of the hitting data from a, a longevity standpoint. Right. But as you see, you see some of these pitchers having more success later into their careers. Um, but you, mainly because the pitcher can control a lot more, you know, hitting is always you're reacting and you're, and you have a plan, but the, the pitchers are, can, you know, so that all they got to do is release the ball. You know, they can, they can, if they have the right mechanics, wind up approach, grip, et cetera, et cetera, they're able to, to do what they want to the ball as long as, you know, their program allows them to, but like, think that like getting back to your question what is it on the most basic level that a player wants in free agency i think they want certainty i think one of the things like a lot of these gms their careers live and die 
Um, you know, I mean, look, there's the Brian Cashman's of the world that have been there at the helm for a long time, but you look at Heim Bloom, for example, who has got a dream job running the Red Sox and, you know, their decisions can live and die based on one trade in this case, Mookie Betts or one free agent signing, or, you know, like it just, they really, these players want it. They know, they know them upside down and backwards. I mean, one of the things that I think, you know, the really, really good teams do. I mean, Theo Epstein, when he was doing it, was one of the absolute best at this. But they really understood their players, what made them tick. They looked at their background. They understood why they were who they were. Because you, baseball players, at their core, I mean, look, like, you come from a baseball family. Come from a really, arguably the most famous baseball family. And generations of, of stars and, and influential figures in the game, so that they're going to know that you, I like to use the word, quote, unquote, get it. You get it. And the reality is, is that like, they don't know when they hand a player a hundred million or 200 million or 50 million, what, how much they really want it. I remember Nolan used to say this and I think it's, you know, you, you, you find out a lot about a player after they get paid. Without a doubt. And, and, Without, and, 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 go ahead. I, I, and I don't, not, and I don't, and I don't judge, I don't judge anybody for, for how, what happens after you get paid. You know, like these guys are making a living and they're working harder than. I think the I average person doesn't understand. <laughs> I don't think the average person understands how hard these guys work um, and how much, you know, how, how dedicated they are to their craft. I think there's, but I think they earn every cent of it. And I think that they spoken like a true Asian, frankly, deserve more, but like, anyway, um, I, 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 this is where I played with a lot of guys. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And and I hear it now, you know, a fan. Well, we got paid. Now he's not going to play. And my answer to them when asked is, for the most part, all my experiences, my life experiences, my teammate experiences, that didn't happen too often. Where I saw one player one day, all of a sudden he signs a lucrative deal and he completely flips and goes on cruise control. Hey, I got paid. That's very rare. I have seen it. And as a teammate, it bothers you, but it's not the norm. People out there think once you get paid, we as, for the most part, we as baseball players, uh, 
the competitiveness. I remember when I signed my first lucrative deal. And I remember reporters coming to my locker. Let's say I had a rough week. The team had a rough week. And, you know, the kidding was maybe it's on the 15th. It was payday. And the check sitting there in my locker, the direct deposit. And, the, you know, the reporter would look at me and go, well, must be pretty easy when you got that check, you know, for the first two weeks. And I remember thinking to myself, and this was my honest answer. I said, I could give a, I yeah. won't use the word, <laughs> what that check says right now. All I know is I'm one for my last nine and I'm not seeing the ball well and I'm confused and I don't care about that check. Now, one day I'm going to be thankful for, for what I was able to do. But but for the for the player like myself, it wasn't about it. It was still about, you know... It, when you first get to the big leagues, it's I'm going to prove I'm a big leaguer. Then I want to prove I'm an all-star, and I want to prove I'm a gold glover. And now I sign a big contract. I want to prove that, prove you right and make you proud that big contract you signed. So I never stopped. I was in, My competitiveness didn't change when I signed the big deal any more than when I was a rookie or, or in AAA trying to get to the big leagues. And, and I think, for the most part, players aren't really like that. There are exceptions. And... Uh, but, I but couldn't agree. Most, I couldn't agree more. For the most part, we're competitive. We're competitive beings. That's what we are. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. But you have to see, like, look, like the biggest problem in today's game, and I alluded to this earlier, is that you know most players reach free agency at thirty years old, twenty nine to thirty one is sort of the average age. So when you get these guys that are twenty six and twenty five, the anomalies, you know, they're worth so much more. And the reality is that most of the time, by the time these guys sign their free agent contracts, you know, like they're already starting into their decline or they're already starting, you know, and 34 is kind of the year I call it. Like if you look at Manny Ramirez, he was like 35 and a hundred for however many years you can look on the baseball reference page. Right. What happens is, is that, you know, Chase Utley was you know, one of the ones I learned on silver slugger and gold glove and, you know, incredible second baseman like when they start to hit 34 and we went through this in a couple of different contracts that's when the hitters start you know they change a little bit it, it's no you can't write the numbers in the same page and it's not it's you know it's it's again they're exceptions but it starts to go and these teams without a doubt without a doubt and when we're and, playing we don't understand that we're, we're you get to a point especially when you're in your prime and you're in the middle of your best years you feel almost supermanish, like I'm in the prime of my career, killing it. And I remember this, and I'll, you know, I got to move on. I got a lot of questions yeah. to ask you, but it happened to me. And I remember I'm coming off a huge year, and it's the early 2000s. And, and, uh, Bavese was the general manager in, mm -hmm. in Seattle. And I remember we needed to have the year on the end of my contract picked up. And I remember the negotiations and him telling Adam, he said, well, I don't know if we want to pick that up because the numbers say at 30, you know, I think it was like you said, 34, or 35 for Brett, his body of work, miles on his legs. He's going to be on the serious decline then. I, now I'm, I'm 32 at the time and I'm going, you're crazy. <laughs> I'm going to yep. be this Superman for the next 10 years. Now I watched Robbie Alomar who's one of the greatest second basemen of this generation. And he was a guy that I looked to when I was coming up in the big leagues. In a few years, he got to the big leagues three or four years before me, but he was kind of the, the gold standard when I got there. And I was always trying to reach Robbie and now win his gold gloves from him. And I remember all of a sudden he wasn't playing well. And I saw him out one night. I said, Robbie, what's going on? 
And he looked at me, he said, Booney, I got to be 35 and all of a sudden I was old overnight. Well, I didn't understand that because I'm like 31, 32. And I'm like, well, that's not going to happen to me. I train hard. I eat right. I swear when I was 35, it was like (laughs) a light went off. And I'm like, I remember asking, you know, asking Robbie Alomar, a guy that I look to a lot. And he told me this. I didn't believe him. But he was right on at Bill Bavese, who I argued. And look, how dare you tell me at 35, I'm going to be this. He wasn't, it wasn't a personal thing with me. It's what the data was telling him. And it's scary. I couldn't imagine. That was 20 years ago. So yes. imagine what the data they had then versus what they have now uh, as an executive or somebody on the other side, not the playing side. I, I would tend to go with the data when it comes to what it says. It doesn't, like, like you said. It doesn't mean everybody. It doesn't mean 100% yep. of the people. There are exceptions to the rule, but that's exactly what they are, exceptions, not the rule. Yeah, and, and I always, you know, I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. And I think that one of the things is that these players are so competitive and that they have tremendous pride in their performance. And the reality is that the next generation is really good. And they're always yeah. just like when you can, like every major league player took someone's job to be that yeah. player just what it is there's there's more accountability more honesty more fairness like i always say like any player that tells you they could have made the big leagues and didn't is lying to you majorly league baseball and we hear it all the time it's yeah, yeah baseball is fa- there's a wonderful fairness in it i think it's a giamatti quote from years ago like there's a tremendous or kofax there's, there's there's fairness the numbers tell you and the numbers today are different than maybe the numbers you played and they're right. looking at different things in different ways but on its face like yes like there is a time and you know i think it's a, i think it's a for love of the game quote which is one of my favorite movies but it, it talks about like the great ones just know when it's time yeah. and, and the reality is is that like today's thing you know you get these huge inflated like you know superstars that have incredible runs at the top of the industry and they don't they don't want to think that's ever going to go away and the reality is is you know it does and i think yeah, that yeah, like it happens it happens to all of us <laughs> and you know, for every you know, for every great Mariano Rivera walking off the mound, and what a moment that is, or you know, Big Poppy's farewell tour, like that's probably like fifty players or a hundred players out of the twenty thousand that ever did it. I mean, that's like a one percent of one percent of one percent of one percent, and that's you know, most baseball ends on a. You know, you remember the first time you remember your major league debut, and you remember the last time you walk off a field. Yeah, and it's in the backfield in Arizona or in. Wherever it is, you remember the last time you played. It just, yeah. just what it is. Right. Every player will tell you that. It usually isn't collecting a motorcycle on your tour of your last, you know, your last yeah. farewell, farewell season at each city you stop by. It is. You're right. It's a very special well, time. Okay, I'm going to get to the modern day. We'll, we'll okay. talk about this off season. How big of a deal uh, was Otani's contract? Now, I'm sitting there as an outsider, as a fan, as an analyst, watching this go down, and I say. Okay, seven hundred million's never been paid. We'll get into the the way they deferred it and all that later. But let's say the number is seven hundred million. Baseball's never seen that. Like when I was playing, uh, the first contract that I ever saw that nobody had seen before was when Alex signed the two hundred and fifty. Greatest players in the game were making twelve, thirteen a year. All of a sudden, Alex signs a two hundred fifty million dollar deal. It was just that far removed from the rest of us. This Otani contract, similar. No one's ever signed for anything close to that. That being said. There's never been an Otani in the game. And and I try to explain this to people. I said, well, he's not going to pitch this year. I understand. But when he's pitching and hitting, he's essentially two $30 million players in my view. 
he he he's elite on the offensive side. He's elite on the pitching side. Now, to keep that act up, I'll tell you what, I'm a huge Otani fan. I never thought it was possible in the game of baseball to play at the highest level as a pitcher and as a hitter. He's proven me wrong. I want it to last as long as it possibly can. I don't know how long that is a reality, but uh, tell me your thoughts. Does that change the game at all, that contract? Not at all. In fact, I was really disappointed with it. Um, I think that it was um, a really, I mean, credit Andrew Friedman, I thought, was one of the best deals I've ever seen done by a, a team. Um, this, I agree with you. This player is two standard deviations from everybody else. I think as a hitter alone, he deserved the largest contract. I mean, that's just what it is. And um, the idea of deferring $68 million a year um, to me amounts to basically giving an interest-free loan to the billionaire ownership group. To me, like I think I, I value that deal at, the present value of it like the union does and our the ebiz system that all us agents use and i think it's at 40 40 430 million or 460 million whatever it is and juan soto is going to go and pass that next year watch and to me you know otani is someone that deserves to be 200 million dollars from the next guy and unfortunately the way it was structured it looked like wow i mean look they they released it before it even you know, before he even passes physical, you know, he announced it, which is something as an agent is kind of a no, no. And our, you know, believe me, these physicals are a very, very big part of it. It might drive some of the sports media nuts that we don't talk about it, but you know, the deals are contingent on physicals. And if you're really doing the deal, right. You know, the idea of a player announcing it before that is something, but um, you know, my feeling on it is that this is the, you know, the greatest player in the game by a, by a pretty large margin. I don't think that's much up for debate. And uh, I think that if you really understand how the, the competitive balance tax works, I'll give you a, a basic analogy. Like if you sign a three-year contract for $30 million and you make 5 million the first year and 10 million the second year and 15 million the third year, right? The AAV of that contract is 10 million a year. So every single year, your CBT hit is $30 million a year. So whether you make 5 million in the year or 15 in the year, whichever year it is, the CBT, the, the effect on the taxation is the same. So the CBT hit, even though the, the Dodgers are paying him $2 million a year, the Dodgers have a TV deal that pays almost $320 million a year, their rights fees. And so before they even sell a ticket, before the, they, they could play COVID style, you know, no, no, nothing. Right. Ticket sales Just aren't a deal to them. Right. Not at all. The broad, they could brought, and that's why the RSN is such a huge issue right now. But like the Dodgers, the way their deal was done, it was done. The structure, you know, um, it, 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 I, I knew a lot about this deal because Arn had my mentor had put in a bid to with Steve Cohen at the time to try and buy the team, and you know the TV deal was record breaking and, and controversial in a lot of ways. But like the Dodgers have incredible amounts of cash flow. And so, like, the idea that, oh, he took $2 million now to free up more cash flow for the Dodgers, and I don't want to speak for them. They have, you know, their, they understand their books a heck of a lot better than I do. But at the same time, like, what these teams are worried about is paying taxes because there's nothing that owners can't stand more than paying taxes to other owners. You know, like, right. and that's, you know, and that's the biggest, that's, that's what most of the, the, the average fan doesn't really understand. The CBT, like, the, a lot of these owners, I think I, probably 20 of the 30 teams could operate at a $200 million payroll. 
but it's it, you know the, the issue is is like is it pro is it profitable for them to do it and is it you know and when you start to get into the luxury tech issues these owners are not a lot of the times not interested in i mean they're they really don't want to, to pay the taxes and i can't i can't fault them for that because you know that's a, that's a decision and so if you look at the otani deal the the you know the aav of the deal is 46 million or whatever it comes out to that's the hit to the cbt and look like it so happened that a couple of Wasserman guys, Tyler Glass now and um, Yamamoto, went and you know joined that great team. But at the same time, like Otani might be making two million dollars, but his cap hit is still forty three. So the way that they're constructing their team is based on what the cap is and where the penalties lie on the cap, not what the actual dollar is paid at the end of the day to the player. So you know you see these teams like you know. You look at like the Cubs and the Red Sox teams that might go over at once and then flirt with it and they get back under it. I mean, the Yankees, I think, violated before they changed the rule like 14 or 15 straight times, I remember. And then I think it was the year of Robinson Cano when he went out to Mariners, but they, they basically got under it one year, reset it, and then redid it again. What I think the Otani deal, I think the biggest thing it's going to do is it's going to really shift the behavior of the large market teams in, next, in the next CBA. Because I think they're going to look at that loophole and say, wow, like they're paying all this money later. and It's outside the contract. It's outside the spirit of the agreement. And the, the other big markets, the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Mets, the Cubs are going to say, wait a minute. And they're going to try to, to, to change it. I'd be shocked if they didn't. And so that's by the first, time that. That's the first that's thing my, I thought about, you know. Yeah. And, and then Yamamoto goes there and signs there. Yeah. And then I thought, well, they, they had room. Because, I don't know. As soon as I saw that going on, I thought. Nothing the Dodgers did or Otani did was illegal. No, it, of course it, not. It was, it was very small. But I thought to myself, okay, that loophole, <laughs> I think it's going to change and there, there's going to be people calling for it to change. Yeah. And I'm saying, look, like, look, you never know what a player wants. I didn't, I don't know what, you know, Otani may have just really wanted to play for the Dodgers. And I think there, you know, I, I read some of the statements and watched it. And like, he's, you know, he's an incredible player. And this was his decision, his well within his right. I'm saying from a contractual standpoint, from just a pure hard contractual standpoint, I feel like it was the Dodgers that really benefited the most from this loophole. I mean, he's he's taking a lot of risk there. I mean, by deferring money, you know, and and on the other si side of it, you know, I think Yamamoto got a fifty million dollar signing bonus. So, like again, like it's you know, dollar and in, in, dollar earns you know more valuable than a, a future dollar. And so it's and so to me, you know, look, it's it, it's. I'm always hesitant. I mean, as an agent, you're you're naturally inclined to kind of always you're always say attacking other deals, but always have an opinion on them. In this case, it was um, you know, it was it was very uh, surprising, is how it would be. And, and and when it first came out, I thought, oh my gosh, what an incredible deal! And then as the layers kind of peeled back, I I really changed my opinion on it. Um, and but at the same time, like. I mean, credit Andrew Friedman and the Dodgers. I think they did a terrific job there, and they and 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 look, Otani deserved every, every single cent of it. He's worth every cent of. I think he's worth every cent of seven hundred million non deferred personally. So yeah. if that's how he's he chose, if so, if that's how he chose to do it, then who am I to tell him or right. or, or Nez what, what you know what? Like, best of luck and congratulations and. Um, but I don't think it's changed the market. I mean, I, I saw Scott come out and make a comment like the, the, the top is still 45 or 46 for sure as there was and where, and, and I agree because that's how we look at it. So. You've done a lot of big deals. You mentioned at the top, 
Giancarlo Stanton, you were part of years back, uh, one of the first mega contracts of the of the new generation. How much work behind the scenes goes into those? I know as a player, and and my big deal wasn't what the guys are getting today. You know, these guys are getting hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but our day, you know, I, 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 it seems like every generation, you know, I look at my grandpa and I remember talking to him about how much money he made. And then I, I saw my dad play 19 years in the last couple of years, he's making a couple million and that's a lot of money. Then he saw my career and, and making the money I made. And he's looking at me going, this is crazy. Now me thinking I'm in a pretty heavy hitting, uh, generation where top play we're making nine, $10 million a year. And that was, now I'm looking at the guys and believe me, I'm more than grateful for, for the career I had and the money I was able to make. But you look at the, the contracts today and you go, whoa, uh, I remember going through my deal. I remember going through it with Adam. I, I, you know, it depends on the personality, obviously, of the player, keeping them at bay, keeping them in the loop. Um, some players are probably tougher than others when you're negotiating a big deal, calling you, get it done. Don't get it done. What's going on? And probably some players just say, Nick, I trust you. Take it away. I'll talk to you when we have a deal. Just take me a general layman's version behind the scene. What goes on one of those big deals? You know, I'll tell you, I'll take you through Jose Barrios. It's a little bit more recent to me and, and a very kind of a, you know, Barrios is a incredibly one of the real gems in baseball as a person and he's a humanitarian. He's just an incredible person, like just as good a person as you'll find. And you saw that. I remember at the press conference, Ross Atkins standing up there and alluding to that. And I think about what happened most of the time is that these teams are really smart and they try to offer deals earlier and earlier into players' careers that will always kind of have the player in essence bet against himself. And when a player is, you know, Jose Brios had children at a young age, he signed for a couple million bucks, but, that that's not enough to set him up you know, in the way that he wanted to live for the rest of his life. When the team comes with 15 million and two options or 17 million or 45, like I, I can look at like three, four, five, six, seven, you know, the, the negotiations took place over many, many years and it, you know, walking away, t- talking to a player. I remember having this conversation with John Carlo up the street at the W hotel when they wanted to offer him $40 million, you know, after one year as a deal that Yelich had signed basically are similar. He ended up signing similar to it. But like one of the things that I think is really important is to educate and help these players understand why you're saying what you say to them. So, you know, I think this idea that like, Oh, just, you know, us at, us at Wasserman, Nick and Joel and Adam, we know what we're doing and just trust us. That's just never been our philosophy. It's really much more of, you know, we just had arbitration week and I'm writing 35 to 40 page arbitration outlines to, to, to tell the player why they're worth what they're worth and how we're going to get to them, how we're going to get there so that they can understand and see a blueprint. Because the modern player is very bright, especially on the, this information is a lot more readily available, you know, than it was maybe in your generation, certainly the generations before that. And so, you know, I think that what really it comes down to is having a strategy and having a plan and executing it together. Because I think that there is, I think any agent on, on the street can get certain numbers, of de- certain types of deals. You know, like you, if you have a star player, that's a huge prospect that comes, I mean, you know, I mean, you, you, well, the guy Churio was offered $80 million before he played a day in the big leagues. You know, like, you know, there's some to a 17 year old kid, they go, wow, what an incredible thing. And I, and I wonder, I mean, maybe he maybe he outperforms, maybe he doesn't. I'm not it's not for me to say, but 
what we really do is try to make the players understand the risks and rewards of that. So I think a lot of the work, there is the work of understanding the teams, the organizations, the trends, the ownership, the TV deals, like understanding what they have. But the, uh, the real work, I think, is in getting the players to really understand, um, you know, the risk management and, and why they should or shouldn't do something. And each player has different, you know, has different risk managements and has different thresholds and really should make different decisions. I mean, Jose Barrios did his deal a year before free agency as a five plus player and got more money than the Cy Young Award winner, Robbie Ray, and more money than Kevin Gaussman in the same year. And then, you know, turned around in what would have been his free agent walk year and had what the worst year of his career. It would have been on a one year, you know, kind of like you see these Giolito deals or it would have been on a one year pillow contract. So again, going to free agency doesn't, I mean, look, Stanton's deal, which was the biggest, was done as an extension. It's not, you know, Mike Trout's was as well. Like there's, there's, there's not, you know, I think you asked earlier about what goes into these deals. I think a big part of what goes into these deals is kind of the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. And if you have one of these superstar players like a Stanton or a Trout in this case, just like when you know them and you know what makes them tick and you know what you're going to get, it really... You know, it, it, it can give a general manager and an owner a lot of uh, a lot of confidence in doing the deal. And, and I think that um, understanding, I think one of the things that most players and most agents get wrong is that most, I think there's too much rancor and adversarial nature between the players and the front offices and Major League Baseball, and there's not enough collaboration. I think that like a lot of these players are kind of ingrained by weaker agents to tell them like, Oh, the team is screwing you. And all they want to do is screw you. And like, yeah, of course they're, they're trying to get you for the best deal they can. That's the job. That's why the general right. manager is making $5 million a year, but he also wants to see you succeed because his career is based on you succeeding. So like, you know, it's not, it's, 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 it's a delicate relationship, but like, you know, the general managers are, hoping that you turn into these hundred million dollar players. They're, they're, they're betting their lives. I mean, there's, you know, I remember John Daniels saying this to me that it's one of the hardest things to do is trade away your top prospect. I think he was talking about Chris Davis at the time. Um, he was talking about how like, you know, you tell, you tell the owner in your meetings every week or every month, what a great player this is and how this prospect is going to change him. And then you trade him away because you give up on him and then he goes somewhere else and he becomes Superman. And it, you know, the owner then looks at you and goes, well, why did, what, what, what are they doing that you didn't do? You know, you told me this guy was good. You vouched for him and you couldn't unlock him. Explain yourself. And I think one of the things that is, is really important to understand is that like, yeah, there are times where the negotiations, I mean, we're going to arbitration in a couple of weeks. There are times where, where it's contentious and there are times where like you, you got to go and got to go to war and put your, put, your, put your paint on and go fight like hell for every scratch, for every, for every inch you get. But then there's also a period of time. I don't know, you know, but there are times where some of the deals are done through you know, really seeing if ideologically you match up and, and each one has a different, you know, a different, uh, tempo, a different, uh, kind of life force behind it. But if there's anything that I've found, I think that what I try to do as an agent is I try to step into the shoes because what does it mean to represent somebody? Like when you're an agent, I, I always like the word advisor better than agent. But like your job is to represent what they want. And so, you know, players have ideas of what they want, but I think that those ideas are often shaped over years and years of a relationship and making them understand that talking to them about 
all different types of deals and trying to educate them on the market so that like, you know, I'm having conversations with a player like Jared Kelnick four years before free agency or five years before free agency because I want him to understand how it works because he's going to be better informed and better educated and make better decisions in that moment when it happens. And I think that the players that take the time to invest, that take the time to, uh, to really understand the system and become students of economics of baseball are the type of players that that i'm looking for and the type of players that i've had the greatest success with and i think uh as well as you know i think that's kind of the the style of player that that my partners have you know what i mean like yeah it's it, it's fascinating and to sit here and it it strikes several chords with me and you, it makes sense, you know, and, and we'll get into the arbitration in a bit, but you talk about the, the general manager. Yeah. His job as a negotiator is to get the best deal for his ball club, to save some room, to have to, to free up some money for the next free agent. At the same time, once that deal's done, man, he wants this player that he just signed. He wants to show everybody how great of a deal was he just signed. And that's going to result on that guy's play. So yeah, it's, it's twofold. The arbitration actually go into arbitration i want to talk to you about that in a bit man that that would be i never got to do it but it's from what i hear it, it can be a real <laughs> sticky and a real put off player your ball club's got to talk crap about you might be coming off an mvp type season a an all-star type season you're sitting in the in the box listening to your gm talk about you're not that good of a player and that was always interest to me never got to do it never went to arbitration but i'm going to hear about it in a minute i want to talk about this offseason still we're still sitting here it's february we're in the first round of the playoffs in the nfl and there's still some of the top free agents of this year's market out there you know just a few snell is probably heading uh the pitcher side of the ledger whereas you've got uh, a bellinger who's probably heading the position side of the ledger they're still out there is this a buyer's market or a seller's? And I guess my second question that comes in on top of that is, when does it start to get crunch time where the players are starting to wonder, when am I going to sign a little panic in their voice and vice versa on the, on the organizational side? When do they get to the point where, yeah, we've waited this out for a while, but we got to formulate this team and I got to, I need these pieces to complete my team to go forward in 2024. So I think that based on the conversations that I had many, you know, two thirds of the general managers over the last month or so, you know, and at some point all 30 of them over the off season, I think that the general consensus is that the talent in this class of free agents wasn't as great as the, the, the last couple. So, you know, at one level you had your, your Yamamoto and your, you know, unicorn Otani at the top, but I think some of these other players have some kind of, uh, different boo-boos on them, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, so there is a little bit more hesitancy. You see that there's a huge demand for starting pitching. I mean, you know, you look at some of these deals, you know, Montas, I think through one inning or something like that, and it's getting $16 million. I mean, like there, there's a tremendous desire for pitching in the market right now. Um, I also think this market is a little bit unique and that it was slowed down right now, you know, Today's international signing day. Last week was the arbitration deadline. Like these teams, well, they can do multiple things at once. You know, they 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 kind of for many years there weren't really any big deals signed between Christmas Eve and January tenth. I think like, George Springer was the only one. You know, 
I have a calendar of every off season all, all imprinted on each other to see, cause I want to take players through it because you have to be proactive in that because I don't care who you are. You know, if you're expecting a $20 million payday and it's January 15th and you thought, you, you know, you see all these other guys shining, you're right. You get, you get, hey, you, Nick, it's, what's it's going human on, nature. Baby? Yeah, what's it's going human, on? It's every Give day. me my money. But, yeah. but I think you, I think that if you're proactive about that and explain that, and I think it's an, a testament, I think Scott has done, that you know for a long time has gotten players great deals late in the off season and i and i i would imagine i don't know his process but i would imagine that a lot of it you, you have to tell these guys early and have them understand the process early and so to me like i think that because otani took a little bit of time and because of the posting of yamamoto and how many teams were involved at a high level on that one i think it kind of slowed all the market down you know the winter meetings this year was was a, was a a dud relative to what it was in the last couple of years. And, and that's something that I think baseball is trying to improve. And, um, you know, Tony Clark and, and Rob and, and Dan and Bruce will get together and hopefully the next time find ways to make the off season a little bit more, uh, to captivate more eyes. I know that's something that, that is, you know, the NBA and the NFL have done a terrific job doing. And it's something that I think is, is doable. And I'm sure that, you know, there are smart people on both sides that will be able to help figure that out. But where I, where I really like, what I really think is the market's a little bit later. It just, it's just delayed a little bit. And and I think that over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see a pretty, a pretty hot little run on players. But again, it, it kind of tends to be like, you see it, whether you're in, you know, the Blake Snell or Jordan Montgomery market, or you're in the kind of mid tier hit, you know, Justin Turner market, like teams have preferences. And usually the first player the one that like the teams covet the most are the one is the guy that goes first. So if the guys at the top are, you know, taking, you know, taking their sweet time, the guys that are kind of one, a one B, they tend to have to wait. And basically now we have a backlog and the guys at one, a, you know, I think the likelihood is that Snell will get his money as Bellinger. These guys are, are star players and will get it. I think the guys that right underneath it are, are the ones that tend to get a little bit fearful. And that, and that's where, and I, and I think the GMs know that. And I think that like, you know, it's not just, it's not just who the players are, but it's also who the agents are. You know, these GMs do a lot of work about agents tendencies and agent strength. And, and again, like you've got to be really proactive in this process to explain that, Hey, this was a possibility, frankly, something that like we saw coming a long time ago. So in this, in this, in this market, you know, a GM, that's so. what he wants to see. He wants an anxious player. He wants a player calling Nick saying, Nick, get that deal done. He's on the other side of the line going, all right, they're getting, yeah, they're getting Nancy. They're starting. That, that's where you get a better deal. I, I learned that early with Jim Bowden, and he explained that to yeah. me after I signed my first four-year deal. He sat me down afterwards and kind of gave me a tutorial. I, you know, I'm 25 years old and I just went, wow, yeah, that really makes sense. But you don't know that when you're 25, you're relying, you know, on your agent. And my agent at the time wasn't, wasn't Adam and Tom Rich. It, it was somebody different, but it was an interesting lesson for me early on in the process. Yeah. Um, these guys are really, they're really smart at what they do. You know I mean? Like they're creating they're trying to get you for the least amount of money. That's their job. I mean, like, you know, they're, they're right. making millions of dollars a year to, to make those doubt. calls. Without a doubt. Um, certain teams, um, you have better relationship than others. I think that's just human. Yeah, of course. That's just how human beings are. Of course we have different, but you got to speak 30 different languages, 30 different teams. Yeah. I, I, I think that, that they're probably, I think that there is like, probably 10 or 12 of them that have really similar kind of behavioral patterns. 
Like there's a lot of like, you know, they come from the same coaching trees. Just like you'll talk about Belichick's coaching tree or Nick Saban's right. coaching tree. Like there's, Vegas football. you know, yeah. And I'm saying you have it in general managers in front offices, you know, Cleveland and, and you know, Mark Shapiro, Dean to Chris Antonetti and then Chernoff and then Ross Atkins and then Derek Falvey. You know, there's a lot, there's, there's that. And there's the Tampa tree and there's the cut. This is Theo Epstein's tree. And there's, you know, again, like these owners go like, again, the more successful a team is, then the, the president gets bumped up and the general manager gets sought after from other teams. I mean, that's just kind of basic human nature. But so when you see guys that come from a certain cloth, cut from a certain cloth, I think that you can understand how they evaluate, how they negotiate. There's certain, you know, again, I talked in the beginning about how important having Arn Tellum and, and Joel Wolf and Adam Katz guide me is. And, and I'm, I'm so lucky that those are the ones that did it because they taught me that this was how it was going to be done. And I imagine that, while Joel and I are very different or Adam and I are very different, that there are certain things that a, a front office executive will say, well, there's certain tendencies that I see with the Wasserman guys that are similar right. or Boris guys or CAA guys or Excel guys or whatever. And because, you know, and the same thing to be done there, but then there's other teams that have completely different ideas and different styles. And, and look like they're all, they're all working really hard to go and do it. And, and I, I just always try to have really great respect for whoever I'm talking to in these situations, because they're, you know, I might not agree with them or they might be using me for something else, but, the, the, you know, they're trying to win and they're trying to, like I said, it's, it's an alpha dog world. And if, if you got a problem with it, you shouldn't be in this job. I mean, like, what do you want me to tell you? Like it, yeah. it, the, the expression of oh, it's the big leagues is it's there for a reason. Yeah, and and I think, it, I think <laughs> the same thing extends to big league contracts and record deals. Like, you know, like you should wake up every day feeling like you're the best. And if you're not, what are you doing? So, um, but yeah, you got to learn to speak different languages. Um, but I think that like, again, being prepared and the harder you work, the more prepared you are. I, I think that you, you garner the respect of the, the people sitting across the table from you, whether it's in an adversarial hearing, like an arbitration or a collaborative deal, like Kyle Hendricks. You know, like however you go approach it, um, there's no substitute for, for the preparation part of it. And that is far and away a 20, you know, I've been here on Martin Luther King Day all day. The only person in the office looking at prospect lists and like studying the Arizona Diamondbacks five-year plan. That was my afternoon. So it's, it never stops. It's the arbitration time of year. Fans hear it. Uh, arbitration eligible. Maybe everybody doesn't understand it. I remember going... Uh, we were threatening to go to arbitration 2001 ended up, we avoided that sign long-term with the Mariners. Uh, but some guys do have to go when you're getting ready for these arbitration cases. A lot of them you settle and usually the closer to the date of the arbitration uh, is when you, when the best deal is on the table and, and you settle, what are the variables that go into uh, whether you're going to take this to the mat, go to arbitration not go to arbitration other than actually the monies. Do you take into consideration the player? Uh, do you advise the player to be in the room if you have to have an arbitration case? And just explain the, the pros and cons to it. So I always think, first of all, the player absolutely needs to go to the hearing. I think if the player doesn't show up, it's a dead red loser. I remember losing okay. on Interesting. Francisco Rodriguez's hearing years ago, and he showed up with like a you know, $100,000 watch on his wrist and you know was that he was asking for a record deal but i think it sent the wrong message i've had arbitrators right. in the other time talk about my 
SIA a suit, you know, make a comment about the, the Wasserman guys and their expensive don't, suits. Don't show up to your yeah. driver's test yeah. in a 500 yeah. series. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Sh- show and up in the Volkswagen. I remember when Vance Worley did his, he was like a broken service guy for the Pirates. We went to arbitration and he was a big car guy. He loved like fancy cars. And I made him rent the Chevy Malibu because I was worried that if he saw an arbitrator like driving into the thing in one of his muscle cars, that they would have a certain, you know, he brought his wife and, and, and baby. And like, you know, there is, there is, there's that element of it because you're, you know, you're asking for a lot of money. I mean, these arbitrators here, you know, a lot of labor law, industrial cases and complex things and are often retired judges and very bright, but they're, you know, the player asking for an extra million on 30 or 31 million when the guy's going to make 300 is, is not exactly going to win sympathy points, which is why players win 42% of the time. But like, for me, the arbitration ultimately, you know, it is about the money and is the team and the league office, the LRD acting in a way that, um, you line up with or not and in some situations you do and in some situations you don't and i think that arbitration is sort of like john wayne stare down like do they think you're going to go or not and most of these deals are done very much against the deadline i mean two of my three deals were done literally within a minute of the deadline of this this year just sort of staring at it and i think one of the things it's like arbitration to me in, in, in a big picture is one of the most important things about baseball in general, I mean, you go, you go back to Marvin Miller and you talk about, you know, Dick Woodson in 1974 being the first arbitration case. And I, I'm a big history guy. I think that history tells you a lot about, you know, you look at the past to see the future. And arbitration is, you know, baseball has never had a salary cap. And arbitration was the first time that a player in his career, after grinding through the minor leagues and three years at the big league level, actually gets to have a say in his contract. And these things are very important and they get compared to other players. And you can say, I'm like him. I'm not like him. I'm like him. And that's sort of the, the big picture stuff. And of course, like which variables you use and how you, you know, how you go at it is, um, you know, very, very complex. And frankly, like how a lot of my career really took off. I, I've been writing our arbitration briefs for many, many years. I passed it now on to a younger guy to do a lot of it. I'll actually deliver and present the case. Uh, that we're going to uh, myself. Um, I love it. I think it's a great exercise. But arbitration to me has gotten really uh, archaic. It's interesting, like on, on arbitration day, like now, you know, you might get one or two GMs doing one or two cases, but if each team has 10, 10 of them, like the GMs really don't care about it in the same way that it used to be. And I think the problem is, is that the arbitration statistics are like behind the modern, like what baseball players evaluate so take tyler glass now as a good example his highest arbitration salary was 5.2 million dollars i don't think he's ever thrown more than 23 starts in the season and he's getting 30 million dollars a year in free agency from the dodgers so what i'm saying is that the statistics that were determining his arbitration value were nothing like the statistics that are determining his arbitration value and so i think there's a disconnect in the process and i think it needs to be revamped i think it's frankly, like at the absolute bedrock of the problem, if you say like, what is the biggest problem in baseball? The system is backwards, as I was talking about earlier. And I think that the real issue is, is that arbitration is sort of the bridge because let's take Otani at 70 million for a second. Otani's making 70 million and the minimum is 700,000. And the union fought and, 
and Claude did an incredible job getting the minimum from 550 to 715. It's a huge win. I mean, lunch with Tony Clark, it was just incredible effort for them to get it there. But like, it's a hundred, Otani's making a hundred times more money than Corbin Carroll would have made this year. Right. You know? And so the problem is that the system is not really, you know, you have these crazy free agent numbers and then, you know, these really like deflated. That's why the draft dollars are worth so much. So what, arbitration is sort of the bridge between them. And the problem is that it's gotten really locked in and credit the, the, the commissioner's office for doing a good job of really like, I mean, they have, they have their finger on the pulse. You almost feel like you're negotiating with them more than anybody else. Because basically what happens is these teams give, they, they get a rec number from the commissioner's office and they put an analytics person on it to just resist you and, and tell the deadline. And then you either take the rec number or you don't. And our job is to figure out how to get above and beyond that rec number. And there's certain cases where like agents don't even get to the rec number and it drives me crazy. But like, I think about like these arbitration cases are all really, really linked to each other. And this is like, like I talk about this when I meet players all the time, but you talk about years ago, we had Mark Trumbo in a case and Mark Trumbo had hit 30 home runs three, t- three years in a row, or he had like 26, 28 and 32, if I remember correctly. And uh, Dan Ugla, who's an all time and won an arbitration case, one of my favorite people, Dan Ugla had hit, you know, had won his case at five, three or five, two or something like that. Mark Trumbo was looking to be, you know, in the, in the neighborhood of, uh, of Dan Ugla. And his first time through, it was a good young player for the angels. And the comp in his case was Pedro Alvarez, who had had two years that were very similar to Trumbo, but then one year that wasn't. So he'd had like, he basically had done what Trumbo had done twice, but then had, he was a lesser version of it. And he was purporting to get in the $5 million raise. And then the day before, Boris did the deal for 4.25, way under market in our opinion. And it sunk everything down. And Trumbo ended, ended up settling for $4.8 million. The reason I tell this story is because, you know, Josh Donaldson comes along, who's a player that's not really that much like Mark Trumbo. He's a platinum glove winning third baseman. But he was a guy that had had, you know, similar power output. And so in the case, you know, uh, Dan Lozano argued a case for Josh Donaldson and lost the case because the arbitrators ultimately decided that Mark Trumbo had done it three times and Josh Donaldson had done it two times. And so Josh Donaldson ended up getting like a little over $4 million as opposed to almost six, which is what he was asking for on the back of Mark Trumbo, who was sunk because of Pedro Alvarez. And then you flash forward a couple the next year and Manny Machado and Nolan Arenado come through and they're completely restricted by Josh Donaldson's settlement because they look a lot like him at the same period of time. And it wasn't until a couple years later that Javi Baez, another one of my guys, comes through and is the runner up in the MVP and jumps Nolan and Machado because the award voting is so valuable. I'm getting really inside the weeds here. But what I'm trying to get at is that like what happened to Mark Trumbo 10 years ago affected Javi Baez 10 years later. So the idea is there's this great, tremendous connective tissue. And so a lot of the statistics that are really old that were governing a different part of time are now governing the modern game. The GMs are saying, eh, whatever, the number is the number, it's below the asset value. So just, you know, do the best you can and then settle. They don't have their finger on it. And so to me, I think the way to fix it is to modernize, like, like, again, like, now war is becoming a advanced statistic in arbitration, but war is an archaic statistic in the stat cast era. It's still a very important statistic, but it's not in any way an advanced statistic, in my opinion. So, again, arbitration is like lagging behind. Right. So it's screwing up everything because it's not keeping up with it with the free agent numbers. Correct. Correct. So it's kind of a a 10 year old system that we still use because nobody's fixed it yet. 
yeah, and you've got to deal with it. And, and from an agent standpoint, you're right. I mean, it's like we're going to do whatever the player wants. And like you said, Shohei Otani, you're the boss. Who am I to tell you what to settle for? Correct. But it still rests on your shoulders as an agent because you gave the example right there. This, this, and this made this, this, and this happen, which tumbles into this, this, and this. And I have something to say when I'm the agent that signs the deal at the bottom. Correct. And we ultimately a, get judged. We get judged by that and attacked for it. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's it's it, you know, you put your you you put your your neck on the line every time you go into a hearing room. I mean, I walked in with Caleb Joseph once. He had zero home runs, zero RBIs, and I lost. Good luck. <laughs> but at the same time, at least it showed that, like, look, you're going to fight for the principle. The thing I love about the arbitration is that you really you get to go in and 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 fight, and it's intellectually very challenging. I think that in the on a microeconomic level, it's a really good system, and I think it needs to stay. I think it's really important for players to have that right and agents to have that voice. I think the true mark of an agent is often I define it more on how they do an arbitration than anything else, personally. Because I think it's the most intellectually challenging, but I think that the system needs—I don't say it, it just needs a retrofit or a little bit of an update to 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 make it so that it's a little bit more uh, to the times. Because you have players that like just—it doesn't, it, you know, you, you, saves or you have players that don't get saves that make less. You know, one guy gets thirty saves as a four ERA, and one guy has a one ERA. And every team in the league would would rather have the one ERA guy pitching in the eighth inning, and the guy with forty saves makes five x the other one. You know, the, the market the market is very broken in a lot of ways, and 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 so they need to, to to again, it's it's a challenging thing. But I think again, I think the bright people on both sides can find a way to make the system. I'd keep the system in place, just find a way to kind of almost scrap it and start anew. I was hoping after twenty twenty when they had the shortened season that might happen, but it didn't. But I think that there is, I think the idea that a player has the right to negotiate in a free market against his team is is a is a very important one and fundamental to players' rights and something that I'm extremely supportive of. When you avoid a hearing, do you consider that a victory? No, I think that it's, I have case an idea. Yeah, I think I have an idea of like what number, I mean, they do a really good job of putting you to the point of, you know, finding where your, your threshold is, but I mean, I think every year there's like 125 cases and 20 go or something like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's less than 8% end up going to hearing, you know, over time. And, and, um, you know, we, we've gone to hearing more than anybody in the last 10 years, 10 times at Wasserman. I, I love it. I, I do. And we haven't gone to last time we went was on Burrios, but, um, I think that again, it's, I think the hardest, they don't do this anymore because usually it's file and trial, but I remember we were doing Addison Reed's many years ago with Adam and Adam settled the deal with Dave Stewart with like five minutes before he walked into the hearing room and you've written like a hundred page brief, you know, printed out $5,000 worth of you know, like blind paper and then the deal gets done and you go home. It's like that, that to me, the only time disappointing is it's like a gut punch when the deal gets settled, you know, literally right, as right you walk at, into right the room. The, yeah. Right at the last yeah, hour. Yeah, yeah, because you've done hundreds of hours of work and then it, you know, again, if the deal was great, and it's the right deal, then it's the right deal. But it's, it's you know, you're so ready to rumble at that moment that, you know. Not, yeah, you want, you're a fighter, and I wanted to fight. Yeah. I didn't want it to be called a draw. Yeah. Uh, last thing, and I'll let you get out of here on this. Sure. I never got to go to arbitration. I, I've heard some horror stories from players that did, the way they speak about them. And, you know, I know it's all posturing, and it's it's, once again, it goes back to being a free agent. The general manager's job is to get the best job for the ball club. 
And sometimes he's got to say, well, he didn't do this, this, and this. Now, once you sign the deal, hey, you're the greatest player in the world. Go play good. Have Has your relationship ever changed with an organization over an arbitration case? I I would tell you that I think that because like, this is my 19th year doing this and I forecast many more, um, I think that organizations between agents and organizations, you know, it changes a little bit, but not that much. Whereas it really, really changes a player's relationship with them. I mean, we did a study yeah. on this, but the number of times that a player signs an extension or goes on there, it really, really low. I, I, you know, it's one of the things I, before we were doing this today, I, I wanted to ask our, our guy to run that stat for me, but it's like, if you go to hearing the odds of you, then, I mean, Jose Brios went to hearing with the twins and in his mind, they wouldn't give me that extra hundred thousand dollars. And he ended up signing an extension with the blue Jays. It wasn't that he wanted to see free agency. He wanted to see that he was paid his value. And so a team that was dug in over a hundred thousand dollars on a player that's worth 150 million, you know, it changed as you know, it didn't change my relationship. It with changed Derek the taste in his, it changed his mouth. The taste yeah. In his mouth. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, it, yeah. and I think, and I, again, I think Derek and Thad are two of the best in the business, and have a tremendous respect for what they did. And and it was, you know, afterwards, you know, Thad and I went to the same college. Thad called me and talked about, you know, uh, the business part. He couldn't have been more gracious and great, and that we did a great job and let the system play. I mean, he, he was it was first class. So no, it didn't change my relationship, but I can tell you, it definitely changed Jose's, like without question. And again, that's sometimes as an agent, like, you know there are times where your relationship has changed with the front office because a player makes you do something. And I, but I think that's not as much the case in arbitration. Although there are times where they push you in and some guys, I mean, I've had guys that just say to us, Hey, I want to go to arbitration. And so you go and you let it play out, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it definitely, it's, it's, it really it lets you know how the sausage is made. And I, I think that it's good for every player to go at least once or once because it really makes them understand that it's a business and that all this stuff they kind of see on the surface level when they get in there and you know, yeah, Pat Houlihan, it, Pat Houlihan or Morgan sword starts <laughs> ripping you. Let me tell you, like you, you, you like players, like, like, do I suck? Like, like, wow. It is, you know, right. they, they're really, really persuasive. They, they, right. They told me I was pretty good last year. They gave me some hardware. Well, Nick Chanik, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. This was cool. It was great catching up. A lot of great insight for the audience. I think they're going to love it. And and I was educated a little bit on the process. And and interesting to me, the arbitration, it needs to be updated. Um, very cool. Oh, by the way, Jake told me to tell you he needs his bats for spring training. <laughs> <laughs> Nick represents young Jake Boone. He, he does a good job for him, and I appreciate that. But all the best of luck with the cases you got left with the uh, free agency. I'm going to be looking for a lot of action coming up here in the next few weeks. You said it's a late winter, uh, and I'm looking at these guys. Yeah, it's interesting. The guys at the top of the ticket, there are question marks with them, even though they're great. Their Cy Young winner is one of them. But the Tampa guy that went to San Diego, there's some question marks. What happened for those four years? You know, we expected a different, obviously this year is as good as it gets with, and I'm talking about Blake Snell. Uh, but we want to see that consistency when we're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Nick, appreciate coming on. We're going to have lunch soon. We've got to play golf, but I'll be in touch for all of you out there watching the boom podcast, new on YouTube. I appreciate you tuning in for those of you listening to the boom podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.